Good evening, everybody. I'm sure we'll have more walk-in as we, as we get, get started this evening. But in fact, I'll, I'll save what I'm going to say until, until after we have a few more that walk in. But uh, thank you for being here tonight. Let's go ahead. We'll start with a prayer, and then we'll get started. Father God, we, we thank you so very much for another day. Father, this day has been filled with blessings, and I'm sure, Father, for many of us, it's been filled with challenges as well. And Father, we thank you that you've given us the strength to face those challenges, and we pray, Father, that you've been glorified in them. Father, we, we know also that we have likely fallen short today of your glory, and Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. Help us, Father, to learn uh, both from the victories and from the failures, and we pray, Father, that you help us to uh, strive to do your will tomorrow and that you will give us another day uh, to bring glory and honor to you through loving you with all of our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Father, thank you for Jesus and for the good news about him. May we write that good news on our heart. May we live it out with our hands and our feet. May we share it with others that they too may know of your grace and your mercy and your love. Father, as we continue our study of your characteristics, of your qualities, of your virtues, Father, help us to have our eyes open to your glory and your majesty. Help us to be drawn even closer to you. And may we live to serve you and to bring glory and honor to you. Thank you for your son, Jesus, for the salvation that we have because of him. And thank you for your spirit uh, that indwells us, who indwells us. And we pray, Father, that tonight and every moment of our lives, we will walk by the spirit and not by the flesh. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Okay, well, good evening, everybody. Uh, let, me, let me say right off the bat that I often forget how, uh, how hard Wednesday nights are, so those of you that are here, and even those of you that are watching online, even if you're not watching on Wednesday night, but you're watching some other time in the middle of the week, to take time out of your busy schedules and to stop everything else, else that's going on and uh, to make time to study and to uh, think about these things is incredibly admirable and is incredibly difficult to do. So thank you uh, for, for making time for Bible study this week and making time for each other. Uh, so we're talking about the qualities and the characteristics of God who who is the Lord and who is like the Lord. Uh, and so every week we like to start off with a question. The first question is, what kind of things make you angry? So we're talking obviously about God's anger and his wrath, but it might be helpful to start with thinking about our anger or our wrath. So that's always a fun thing to think about is what makes you angry? You get to share what what makes you mad tonight? So what, what are some of the things that maybe not you specifically make you angry, but maybe people in general, or tell us what makes you angry, whatever you want to do. Any thoughts? What makes you angry? People, yes, yeah. I, I used to work with a guy that said church work would be easy if it wasn't for all the people, and I'm sure school work or every, every other job would be easy if it wasn't for all the people, right? Yeah, people a lot of times make us angry, right? What else? Injustice? Standing in long lines, yes, absolutely. So standing in long lines, injustice, yeah. Maybe angry at different levels, but yeah, both, both of those make us angry, don't they? What else? What else makes you angry? When we talk about people I, getting cut off in traffic, that makes me angry. I don't know about you. Several times today, it's, it's amazing how often that happens. What else makes you angry? 
Family members even sometimes, right? Family members can make you angry. Sometimes the people that we love the most can make us the most angry uh, because we're certainly not apathetic about what they do. I'm, I may not get too angry about what somebody else does out there as long as their, their lack of logic or reason or consideration doesn't affect me. I may not be too angry about that, but when my family members do it, especially my kids, then that, that might make me angry right? Because we care about them. And we, we, so sometimes it's because it's affecting me and sometimes it's because it's affecting them. And I don't want their, their bad decisions to affect them. So when people that we love do things that aren't good, it makes us angry. What else? Absolutely. Yes. Watching television. Absolutely. Watching television can make you angry for sure. Whether it's the news or entertainment or whatever it is. Yeah. Anything else? Okay, second question is, what are some metaphors that come to mind when you think of anger? Or maybe not metaphors, maybe more figures of speech, but any, any kind of metaphor or figure of speech that comes to mind when you think about anger? We've got all kinds of good ones. I'm excited about this question. What are some metaphors or figures of speech that come to mind when you think about anger? Angry as a hornet, that's a good one. I like that one. Angry as a hornet, that's good. Angry as a hornet. Madder than a wet hen, yes, good. Anything else you can think of? Burning rage, absolutely. Yeah, there's all kinds of, when we talk about the burning things, there's all kinds, we say somebody's hot under the collar, right? Yeah, so there's all kinds of burning metaphors that my dad used to say, that, that was my dad's favorite one, that burns me up, like that's what he would say, that burns me up. Anything else you can think of? If somebody gets mad easily, we say they have a, a short fuse, right? A short fuse. I wrote down a bunch of them, but you guys mentioned several that weren't on mine. Boiling over, right? We, say, we might say somebody's boiling over or that they blew their top, right? Somebody blew their top, lost their cool. Um, he's, we even kind of talk about anger as a burden, like he's carrying around, that person's carrying around a lot of anger. So we talk about it like as if it's something that they could carry around with them. Uh, how about you're standing on my last nerve, right? If I'm about to get angry, I might say you're standing on my last nerve. We might talk about it like it's a wild animal, like he unleashed his anger. Uh, in fact, sometimes we would try to work with our, one of our sons about his anger, and we would talk about it in those terms like it was a monster, and he kind of needed to put the monster back in the cage. Uh, but we, we, we even use that term, even as adults, we say that someone unleashed their anger, that they just let it go and just let it, uh, let it do its, its worst. Any others that you can think of, metaphors or figures of speech that pertain to anger? When in English we say that someone has a short fuse, and again, we talk a lot about anger as something that's hot or something that's explosive or something that's boiling over, and that tends to be how we think of it. And similarly, uh, in Hebrew, they would think of it in a very similar way, only they would talk about the nostrils. 
And so the word for anger or wrath, when it talks about God's anger or wrath, it, it's literally talking about his nose, his nose. And, and it makes a lot of sense. In fact, I, was, I picked my sister up from the airport today, and I was telling her about this idea. Um, and I said, tonight we're going to talk about a Hebrew phrase that literally means, it means um, long-nostrilled, long-nostrilled. And she said, why does it mean that? Well, if you think about it, when you get angry and you, you kind of... You kind of snort. I can't really do it so that you could hear me do it. But when my sister was little, and this is why I was talking to her about it, she, when she would get mad, she would kind of scrunch her nose up and she would just kind of snort out of her nose. And we kind of do that, don't we? In fact, we might even picture flames or smoke coming out someone's ear or maybe out of their nostrils. So we, we have this, this image of the nose being associated with anger or maybe steam or snorting when somebody is angry. Well, God is said to have long nostrils. God is said to have long nostrils, which would mean that God is not short-fused, right? He has a long temper, or in other words, he is slow to anger. And again, when you see that phrase in the Bible, that God is slow to anger, literally, the Hebrew phrase means God has long nostrils, right? God has long nostrils. It takes a lot for God to snort with anger. He will, and this is what we need to talk about tonight, that God will snort with anger, but it takes a lot to get him there. It takes a lot for God to get wrathful. It takes a lot for God to get angry. God does have wrath. God does have anger. God will get mad, but it takes a lot to get in there. When we persist in sin, when we continue in sin, when we won't turn around, when we won't go another direction, when we won't listen to reason, when we won't listen to rebuke, when we won't accept discipline, God will get angry. But it takes a long time to get in there because God has long nostrils. God is slow to anger. It takes a lot for him to snort with anger. Now, I think it's kind of interesting that we live in a culture, do, do you think, we, we should do like a, a thumbs up or thumbs down, I don't know how we could vote on something, but what do you think? Do you think in our culture today, people like the idea of God being a God of wrath? Yes or no? What do you think? Yes? Thumbs up for yes, thumbs down for no? Yeah, I would, kind of, I would kind of say no, right? We don't really like that idea, right? Don't talk about God being a wrathful God. It's kind of like what we talked about last week about God's jealousy. And in fact, there's a lot of these overlaps, God's righteousness, his justice, God's jealousy, God's wrath. And so we don't like to talk about that. In fact, you might even be thinking, why do we have to come and you're talking about God's jealousy and God's anger and God's wrath? There's a lot of positive attributes about God. Yes, but wait. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that we say, well, I don't like the idea of God being a God of anger and wrath, but then maybe sometimes the same people that would say that, I, I don't believe in a God like that. I don't believe in an angry God. I don't believe in a God of wrath. But sometimes the same people that would say that would also say, why doesn't God do something about all the evil in the world, right? Why doesn't God do something about all the rapists, all the murderers, all the terrorism, child molesters, child trafficking, there are horrible things going on in the world. And so there are people that say, why doesn't God do something about that? Wait, wait, did you, did you want him to be angry or not? Do we want him to be mad or not? Do we want him to be a God that has wrath or, or not? And, and that's kind of one of the problems with all of these attributes that we're talking about in this series, isn't it? One of the attributes or what one of the 
One of the things we, we have to consider is are we talking about a real God or not? And, and one of the ways that you can tell that we're talking about someone who is real is whether or not he thinks and acts just like you. If he thinks and acts just like you, guess what? He's a figment of your imagination, right? If, if your God thinks and acts just like you, he's a figment of your imagination. A God who only gets angry on cue, a God who only gets angry on cue is a God of our own imagination. Isn't that right? A God who only gets angry on cue, like, God, you should be mad about this, and you should strike them down, and then, but, 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 but hold on, God, don't be, don't be angry at me, you know, I, I just make mistakes, and, you know, I don't want you to be angry at me, just, I need lots of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, but be mad at them, because they're horrible, bad people, right? And, and a God that only gets angry on cue, that feels exactly as we feel, and acts exactly like we want him to act, and does exactly what we want him to do, that's a God of our own imagination. When you're dealing with an actual God, when you're dealing with the actual God, the one true living God, you're, you're dealing with a God who doesn't get angry on cue. He doesn't work for you. He doesn't, he doesn't get angry when you want him to, and only when you want him to, Right? You're dealing with an actual God, which means he's going to be patient and long-suffering. He, he's going to not get angry sometimes when you say, God, you should fix this. Do something about this right now. And there's going to be other times when you say, no, we don't want you to be angry. And God is angry because he's not a God of our imaginations. He's real. He's real, which means his emotions are real. His actions are real. His thoughts are real. And we have to wrap our minds around that, that his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. His wrath is not our wrath. So sometimes I'm going to be angry and I think, it's about time for a lightning bolt, God. I want you to throw one of those bad boys down right now. And God says, no, I'm, I have long nostrils. I, I'm slow to anger. I'm waiting. I'm patient. And there's going to be other times, particularly when, when Jesus comes on the day of judgment, there's going to be judgment. There's going to be wrath. And we might think, oh no, I don't like to think about a God of judgment and wrath, but you can't have it both ways. This is a real God. He is a real God with very real emotions and very real actions and very real wrath and anger. And it is good news. And tonight we're going to talk about why his wrath is good news. So look at Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse 6. One of the first times we see God's if you just showed up and you missed me talking about God's long nostrils, literally in Hebrew, slow to anger is, is a metaphor, and the literal metaphor is that he has long nostrils, or he, it takes a lot to make him snort with anger. And so in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, as God reveals himself, he says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this is one of the, the often repeated ideas, phrases, passages about God throughout the Old Testament. You'll hear these exact words, that God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. 
So there's kind of two sides to this, aren't there? To the idea that God has long nostrils. On the one hand, God has nostrils. God has wrath. God has anger. But on the other hand, his nostrils are long. He is slow to anger. It takes a lot to make him angry. And so on the one hand, God is is patient. God is slow to anger. But on the other hand, he will. And if you persist in sin, if you persist in sin, if any group of people persist in sin, God will get angry. God will punish. His wrath will come. And so his wrath is is a good thing. And it's something that the righteous long for. Look at Exodus chapter 22. Verses 21 through 24. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Now, we might read that and think, oh, that's awful. That's awful. I don't like a God who talks like that. But we only think that if we're not the widow or the fatherless or the sojourner or the oppressed, right? Because the oppressed read that. The the fatherless read that. The widow reads that. Someone who is suffering at the hands of injustice, somebody who's suffering at the hands of people doing wrong to them, and this is good news, right? Right? This is good news that there is someone who fights for them, someone who gets angry when they're hurt. Because who else will, right? Who else will? In fact, when you think about it in, in the ancient world, if somebody is a sojourner, they're outside of their clan, they're outside of their tribe, and the way they thought of their gods, they're even outside of their own god's protection. They thought of their gods as being regional, They thought of their gods, well, my gods were back home. My gods protected me when I was there, and they provided food for me when I was there. But now I'm in the land of Yahweh. Now I'm in the land of the Israelites. And and if I get mistreated here, and somebody takes advantage of me here, and somebody hurts me here, who's going to stand up for me? Who's going to help me? And Yahweh says, I will. I will. Those who sojourn in my land, those who are strangers and aliens in this land, I will watch out for you. And again, widows and fatherless, the the orphans, who else is going to stick up for them? They don't have any family. They don't have a clan. They don't have a tribe. And God says, they're mine. And if you oppress them and you hurt them and you harm them, then I will be angry. And that's good news, isn't it? That's good news because as we said the other day when we were talking about God's righteousness and justice, it means that there are no crimes, there are no crimes that go unsolved. There are no crimes that go unwitnessed. God witnesses every crime and he will solve every crime. He will bring every perpetrator to justice. And if you've ever experienced that kind of thing, like someone hurts you really badly and you have been scarred for years and humans didn't bring any justice or any closure, you can rest assured that God saw what happened and God's anger is with you and for you. So it's it's good news, isn't it? 
It's good news that God is a God of justice. It's good news that God is a God of jealousy. As we said last week, that God's wrath goes along with his jealousy and his jealousy goes along with his love, right? You're not jealous of something or someone you don't love. The fact that God is jealous is because of his love. And the fact that God gets angry is because people he loves are hurting themselves and hurting others. So of course it makes him angry. Of course it makes him angry. If you broke something that belonged to your father or your mother, you went in and you said, Mom, I broke this. And they said, ah, no big deal. eh, I don't care. You'd say, oh, good. They didn't care about it. They didn't like that thing. It wasn't important to them. But if they got angry and they were upset, why did you break that? I've told you a thousand times not to touch that. Why did you do it? I've told you not to do it and you did it anyway. You say, ah, that was really important to them. And God's wrath, God's anger is a reflection of the fact that we are really important to God, which in and of itself, I know for us, we think, well, duh, of course, we're really important to God. Wait a second. Let's get off our high horse for just a second and think about the universe. We are a speck. The planet Earth is a speck in the universe. And you and I are are less than a speck on this tiny speck in the middle of the universe. And the God who created the entire cosmos, he looks down and he cares about us above everything else that he created. Human beings are at the top of his list. And he cares what we do to ourselves and what we do to each other. He cares about it, not only rationally and logically, but emotionally. And that doesn't mean he just flies off the handle because, again, he's, he's slow to anger. He has long nostrils. But, but believe, believe the fact that he cares about us. And it makes him angry when we hurt ourselves and when we hurt each other because he, excuse me, because he loves us. Now, Again, we might just stop there and say, good, God's mad at all those bad people out there. That's great. I'm glad to hear it. God's mad at all the bad guys in the world, all of the rapists and the murderers and the child traffickers and the horrible thieves and all these bad people in the world. God is mad at them. And Paul would say, whoa, 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 hold on. It's not just them. Look at Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 18. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. Because it's really easy, isn't it? And I I think Paul's whole point in Romans is about Jews and Gentiles living together in love under the banner of Christ. And the reason I think that is because Paul says over and over again, for the Jew first, but also for the Greek. And so he begins by talking about God's wrath is rightfully upon the Gentile world. God's wrath is rightfully upon the Gentile world. We, We might think about certain places Maybe even in the United States, I won't mention any by name because I don't want to offend anybody, but we might think of certain cities or certain locations in in this country or in the world, and you think, yeah, that's a bad place, batch of bad people. I imagine God is angry about those people in that city, or God is angry about people in that part of the world. Wait a second. Yep, maybe, maybe so, but it's not just them. And again, it was really easy for the Jewish people to be like, yeah, all those Gentiles out there, you know, Oh, you know what all those Gentiles are like. I mean, you can't even walk down the street without seeing something you shouldn't see or eating something you shouldn't eat. Or, I mean, just, it's just awful. All of those Gentiles, God is rightfully angry with them. And Paul says, you're right. God is angry with them. But it's not just them. It's also the Jewish people. Because you've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Look at Romans 1 and verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all 
ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In these things, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And it's pretty remarkable, isn't it? It's pretty remarkable that that human beings have had a tendency to be rather religious, haven't we? Even, Even when humans didn't have the law right in front of them, they've tended to be very religious. And even in their philosophy, they've tended to be very moral. They've looked around and say, you know what, it's it's probably not good that we hurt each other. It's probably not good that we take each other's stuff. It's probably not good that we lie to each other. That that doesn't really seem to to make for a good environment. So let's not do that kind of thing. And so they've they've written out rules. They've tried to worship something or someone. They've they've sort of philosophized about things and said, this is good and this is bad. And it's pretty amazing what humans have come up with, right? And Paul says, yeah, because it's obvious. A lot of these truths are obvious. And guess what? Even though it was obvious, and even though the way you should have lived your lives was obvious, you didn't even live up to the standard that was obvious. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This this idea of the majesty and the glory of this creator, they gave that glory to pieces of wood and stone shaped like birds and animals and people. Paul says they were suppressing the truth. And because they were suppressing the truth, God, verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And and this, nothing has changed, has it? In 2,000 years, nothing has changed. We, We continue, even though we tend to be less religious in our world today, we continue to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, don't we? We, we tend to worship the creature rather than the creator. And so we've, we've chased after all of this stuff, all of these creature comforts. We, we serve ourselves. We serve our pleasures. We serve our appetites. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Now it's really easy for any of us to sort of pick out things on the list and say, yeah, see, people like that, those are the bad people that God is angry at. 
but I'm willing to bet we could all find ourselves on this list. And that's Paul's whole point. We can all find ourselves on this list. And Paul says, even though humanity, humanity, the unbelieving world, they, they knew better than this. Even by their own standards, they knew better than this. They continued to plunge themselves into debauchery. They continued to plunge themselves into ruin. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore, you have no, what? Excuse. You have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. So it's really easy, again, to say, yeah, God's mad at people in that city. God's mad at people in that part of the world. God's mad at those kind of people. God's mad at people that do things like this. And Paul doesn't disagree. He's not arguing. He's not saying, no, God's not angry. No, no, no. God's wrath is on all of humanity, including y'all. All y'all, right? Because you've done the exact same thing. And if for a moment we step outside of it and we accuse and we say, those people, God, bring down your lightning bolts. I'm tired of those kind of people. You need to just strike them all dead. He says, don't, don't you understand? Don't you understand that you can't talk like that? Don't you understand that you have no right to talk like that? Don't you understand that you don't have any room to call down God's wrath and judgment on anybody else? Because if you do, it falls on you as well. Because you're guilty as well. Or do you presume, verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance. This is why God has long nostrils. This is why God is slow to anger. Not because he's just lazy and not doing anything about all of the stuff in the world, but because he wants people to come to repentance. Oh, God could wipe out all the evil in the world like that, but he doesn't want to. He wants to give people the opportunity to be made right, to be restored, to be forgiven, to be, to be healed, to be put into a right relationship with him. He is angry his wrath does burn but it burns slow and his slowness of anger is supposed to be bringing us to repentance but if we're still just saying no god you gotta strike those people down you gotta kill those people your lightning bolts need to come down wait stop we're not really understanding who this god is or or who we are and just how guilty we are and presuming upon his kindness. He says, verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, that's what really makes God angry. Hard and impenitent hearts. That says, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to do it your way. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to do it my way. And I don't care how bad it hurts, and I don't care who I hurt, and I don't care what the consequences are. I'm going to do it my way. And God's wrath and judgment will come upon those who are hard-hearted and impenitent. But he waits. He waited for you. He waited for me. 
He's waiting for us, and he's waiting for so many others because he wants to bring them to repentance. Look at chapter 3 and verse 9. I know we're kind of skipping around, but I didn't have time to read all three chapters in their totality. Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? See, he kind of turns the tables, doesn't he? He says, yeah, I know us Jews, we have the law over here, and we're like, yeah, I mean, that's true for all of them. And sometimes we think that our world is bad today. Nothing compared to the first century Roman world, the Greco-Roman world. You can't even imagine. I can't even imagine what it would have been like. For, for most of these Gentiles who were coming to Jesus, their religious experience before that was going down to an idol temple and maybe engaging in an orgy. I mean, their, their religious life was what we look at in the world, and I don't even want to think about those things. That was their religion. That was part of how they worshiped their gods. And now they're coming out of that, coming to, to Christ. And, and can you imagine as the, the Jewish side of that, who even, even before Jesus, they didn't do things like that. They, they weren't at the idol's temple. They weren't engaging in orgies. They weren't getting drunk. They weren't doing these things. And so now they're supposed to share a table with someone who weeks ago or months ago was down there doing these things and they kind of turn their lips up at them and Ugh, I, can't, I can't eat with this person. I can't be around this person. I don't care if they worship the same Messiah as I do. I, the things that they have done and look at what Paul says. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it's written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul doesn't want even a single person to say, yeah, God is rightfully angry with them out there without realizing that, no, 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 you are just as guilty. Your hatred, your bitterness, your words, your lack of godliness, all of that is just as much calling on and deserving of the wrath of God as anybody else. So nobody gets to stand on a higher place than anyone else. No one gets to sit on their high horse. Nobody gets to say, well, yeah, well, God's a little bit angry with me, but he's a lot angry with y'all. No, no, all of you, all of them, all, both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. Then he says in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world, the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Nobody. The Jew says, well, I, well we, wait, wait a second. Well, time out here, Paul. We got the law here, buddy. I mean, we've had the law. And Paul, have you kept it? All of it? No. In fact, the law reveals to you just how broken you are as well. And there's not a single one of you, there is none of us that can say, oh yeah, well, I earned 
God's favor. I earned a place in God's family. Paul says, no, not by works of law. You have it. Nobody has. You cannot work your way into a right relationship with God because all your work does, all you're trying to obey the law does is reveal just how far short you've fallen. All of it does. There's no one who stands in a right relationship with God because he perfectly kept the law. Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God. And remember, righteousness means God's justice. The justice of God, God's justice. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You want to talk about God's fairness? Yeah, let's talk about God's fairness. Because usually when we want to talk about God's fairness, it's like, okay, God, I want you to be fair. And by fair, I mean treat me well and treat them like they deserve to be treated. And Paul says, nope, because y'all all know how you deserve to be treated, right? You all, des- you all know what you deserve, and none of you has achieved the glory of God. None of you has kept the law perfectly. You've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. You've all been broken. You've all been sinful. You've all been wicked. You've all deserved God's wrath. And here's what God is going to do. In his fairness, in his justice, in his righteousness, he's going to offer you all a gift. All of you, Jews and Gentiles, all of you. And if you're going to accept his gift, you have to accept it on those terms. That this is a gift, this is a gift given from a gracious God, and it is received by faith. And if you're going to be in a right relationship with him, it has to be received on that basis. You can't come in to the kingdom and say, yeah, 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 Uh, okay, yeah, I got it, gift, received, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm saved by God's grace, but kind of also because I'm really good. Nope, none of that, none of it, zero. You can't have that. You can't look at your Gentile brother who a few weeks ago was down at the idol temple before he became a Christian. You can't look at him and think you're better than him. It doesn't work that way because we were all just as deserving, just as deserving. And that person you're so angry at and you hope God is just as angry about their behavior as you are, we all have to recognize that God is just as angry about our behavior, that we all deserve God's wrath. And that if any of us are forgiven and God, his, his wrath and anger have passed over us and his wrath and anger are no longer on us, it's only because he gave us that gift through Jesus. That's the gift that Paul is talking about so that we might be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation. We'll come back to that word as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, see, God has long nostrils. God is slow to anger. In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It wouldn't be fair if it was on any other basis. But he says, here's here's the fairness of God. He's giving you all a gift and you all have to accept it by faith in Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus, when you're baptized into him, Romans 6, and you're raised up from that water to walk in this new and different kind of lifestyle, 
you're all saved by the same grace, by the same mercy. You're all redeemed by the same blood. And he says that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation. It's exactly what propitiation means. It's an atoning sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that causes God's wrath to go away from you so that God is no longer angry with you, so that you are no longer under his wrath. If you are sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, if the blood of Jesus has been sprinkled on you, if you have received his gift of redemption by faith, by putting your trust and giving him your allegiance, by being baptized into Jesus, then you are saved by his blood and the wrath of God. It's like the Passover. You remember the Passover? Children of Israel put the blood of the, the lamb on their doorpost and the angel of death passed over their houses. The wrath of God passes over you, not because of the good things you've done or because you're not quite as bad as everyone else, but because of the blood of Jesus. See, this is one of the only religions that thinks this way. Most religions are a matter of merit. If your good works outweigh your bad works, then, then you're saved. God is good with you if your good stuff outweighs your bad stuff. But if your bad stuff outweighs your good stuff, then uh, you're, you're out of luck. And so I hope I've done enough good stuff to outweigh my bad stuff. That's every other religion in the world, not Christianity. Christianity is so much different. It's not just a religion. This is, this is an event that took place, an event that changed everything, that said your access to God is through Jesus, and he is offering that access to all of you equally, both Jews and Gentiles. Everyone can come to God through Jesus, and Jesus' blood becomes a propitiation. It causes God's wrath to pass over you so that we are saved from the wrath that we deserve. God has slow-burning wrath. God has a slow-burning wrath against all that is wrong in the world. And that's good news, isn't it? It's good news on the one hand because it's a slow-burning wrath. Because in his slow-burning wrath, because if, if his wrath wasn't slow-burning, you and I wouldn't be sitting in this room tonight, would we? If God's wrath was quick, if he was quick to get angry, we wouldn't be here. We, we probably would never even have existed, for that matter. But if we did exist, we wouldn't be in this room. But we are here because, because God's patience and kindness and his being slow to anger has brought us to repentance. That's why he continues to be slow to anger. And it's good news. I know there are times when you think strike them dead, but if you ever think strike them dead or get your vengeance on them or be mad at them or be angry at them, remember what you deserved. And remember how he was slow to anger with you and how he brought you to repentance. That's what his kindness is supposed to do. And to this day, we still have to grapple with his wrath, don't we? Because we, can, we have a choice to make. Every day, we have a choice to make. We can either hold on to our sin, and if we hold on to our sin, then God's wrath has to deal with us, right? If we hold on to our sin and say, nope, I'm not going to let that go. I like that too much. That makes me feel too good. I enjoy that too much. I'm not going to let that go. I'm going to hold on to that. Then God's wrath will have to deal with us. But if we let it go, and we surrender it, and we repent of it, and we say, I don't want that. I don't want to live that way. I don't want that to be in my heart. I don't want that to be in my mind. I don't want that to be in my life. When we surrender it, God can deal with our sin instead of dealing with us. 
If we cling to it, God has to deal with us. If we let go of it, then he can deal with our sin. But it's also good news because we can leave things up to God's vengeance. We are called to be a people that always turn the other cheek, that always go the extra mile, a people who are meek and lowly and kind, even to our enemies, who love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. When our enemies are hungry, we feed them. When they're thirsty, we give them a drink. And the only way we can do that, well, I guess there's two ways. We could try to convince ourselves that it's really not so bad that they do these things to us. We, it's really not so bad. It's, you know, we all make mistakes. We could convince ourselves of that. Or we could say, no, it really is that bad. It really is that bad to hurt people and oppress people and, and take advantage of people. That is bad. But I'm not going to be the one to take vengeance on them. God is. He has anger and wrath. And it's a good thing that he does because we can trust him. We can trust him. That's the only way. Imagine if we take the gospel to some some tribe somewhere in the world and maybe they've been fighting with some other tribe for a hundred years and they just can't get over they did all of these things to us and we have to get back at them and you go to the other tribe and they say well they've done all of these things to us and we have to get back at them and then you have to start somewhere and teach people the gospel and we say but listen Jesus loves you and he wants a better life for you and, and, and he wants to forgive you of what you've done and he wants you to be saved and he wants you to take up this path of discipleship and they say, but if I do that, what's going to stop them from continuing their, their tirade? What's going to stop them from hurting us? Who's going who's to hold them accountable? And that's when we can give them the good news. God will. His slow burning wrath is against everything that's wrong in the world. In me, everything that's wrong in me, and everything that's wrong in the world. And God will set everything right. And whatever we turn over to him, he will deal with our sin. But everything we cling to and everything the world clings to, he will deal with that too. And he will make everything right. And I, for one, am thankful that our God is a God of wrath because in his wrath, he will make all things right. And I'm thankful that his wrath is slow burning because he's given me time to continue to repent and to be sanctified. And I hope we're all thankful for that. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, we are, we're thankful that we never once have to take vengeance. We never once have to get someone back for what they've done to us because we know, Father, that you will set everything right. We can turn the other cheek. We can love our enemy, pray for their repentance and, and love them and do good to them because we know that in the end, all things will be made right and that you will take care of all things and set all. Thank you, Father, too, that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love because it's given us the opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus and we pray that you continue to help us to root out everything that is dead and unworthy in us and offer it up to you as a sacrifice. Help us, Father, to be drawn ever closer to you and help us, Father, to die to all of the things in ourselves that are worldly. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace, for your being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.